0: short rounds. Hey y'all and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host James Hauser and I'm glad to see that you've all come to join me on this beautiful Monday. Well maybe it's beautiful. I don't know. I know it's getting warmer. I hope it's beautiful. If it isn't beautiful I have a short round for you today to make it more so. So like I said last week, I've been in the middle of some real-life turbulence, some moving and some stuff, so this week's offering is two short rounds featuring two fascinating figures of the Crimean War. Two short rounds this week, and next week, the series finale. Got it? Moving on. Today's episode talks about one of the great figures of Russian literature, maybe the great figure depending on who you talk to, Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace, Anna Karenina, and many more. But before Tolstoy was admired and beloved across decades and continents, he was a young army officer in his 20s who happened to serve in the Crimean War, in the Siege of Sevastopol. During the siege, Tolstoy wrote three short stories that are collectively known as the Sevastopol Sketches. Sevastopol in December 1854, Sevastopol in May 1855, and Sevastopol in August 1855. These were the works that basically put him on the map as an author, made him widely known in Russia. But Tolstoy's experience in the Crimean War was more than literary. This was a personal journey, a transforming experience that changed the way he saw the world. This is why Tolstoy is one of our protagonists, our Russian army officer, our writer. So let's take a look at A City Under Siege from the point of view of one of the world's greatest writers. Let's take a ground-level view of the Siege of Sevastopol with our tour guide, Leo Tolstoy. As always, this is not just history, but military history, so there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. All my sources will be hosted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate, to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Lev Nikolaevich Tolstoy was born on September 9th, 1828, at his family estate of Yasnaya Polyana, 120 miles south of Moscow, near the town of Tula. The Tolstoy's were old Russian nobility, so Tolstoy was part of that privileged class lording it over the serfs. I mean, yeah, but he still did have a rough childhood. His mother died when he was only two, and his father was basically an absent parent who also died when Leo was nine. Tolstoy was raised by a series of aunts. Not The the relative, not the insect. Young Leo Tolstoy was apparently a spoiled brat. With no strong parent to raise him and inheriting the title of Count Tolstoy and a bunch of money at such a young age, he was just uncontrollable, a troublemaker that would fit in pretty well at an Ivy League fraternity. He went to university in 1844 at the age of 16 and immediately set off on a rampage of drinking, gambling, and whoring so blatant that he was kicked out. He drifted to Russia's major cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg, living the life of a rich kid with no boundaries, no values, and no work ethic, like ain't nobody raise him. Around this time, Tolstoy decided to turn his hand to writing. Yeah, he might have been just a teenage dirtbag baby, but the kid could definitely write. In 1852, Tolstoy published his first novel, Childhood, a fictional memoir of his upbringing. Childhood was recognized as the work of a budding genius by literary critics. This was a talent that might blossom into true greatness. But true greatness would require Tolstoy to stop acting like an adolescent maniac. By the time Childhood was published, Tolstoy had pissed away a lot of his money at the gambling table. I do want to add, this was not unusual for Russian nobility in the 19th century. They were legendary for being rampant spenders and just blowing thousands, millions of rubles, and forcing their serfs to work overtime to make up for it. Tolstoy had spent so much money that, well, he had to get a job. So what did the young Russian noble with romantic dreams and no direction in life do? What they do today, what a bunch of kids do today, Tolstoy joined the army. He served for a few years in the Russian army as an artillery officer, including some service in the Caucasus probably figuring he'd ride out his time, then get back out there to go drinking and whoring and partying again. But then the war came. Ensign Tolstoy entered the Crimean War in March 1854, his rank was Ensign at the time, when he arrived on the Danube Front at the Russian Army headquarters in Bucharest. Tolstoy was attached to the staff of Prince Gorchakov, one of the main Russian commanders, who would ultimately be commander-in-chief in the Crimea in 1855. The Crimean War might have begun, but Tolstoy was still pretty much a rear-area dude, enjoying the Bucharest nightlife while Russian soldiers were fighting and dying on the Danube. He wrote to his aunt that, While you are imagining me exposed to all the dangers of war, I am very quietly at Bucharest, strolling about, making music, and eating ice cream. Tolstoy observed parts of the Siege of Silistria in spring and summer 1854, but saw pretty much no action himself. He wasn't leading the storming parties, commanding artillery batteries, or fighting in the trenches. Even when the Russians were forced to withdraw from the Danube, Tolstoy was chilling. He was just chilling. He was always writing. Officers commented on that weird rich kid who was always scribbling away in his book. Tolstoy did write some short stories based on his army experiences, including the brutality of Russian military discipline. Many of these stories did not get published because the Tsar's censors got rid of them. They didn't allow them to be published. Tolstoy was shocked to see one officer beating the crap out of a soldier for no reason other than, well, he was a soldier and soldiers must be beaten. Tolstoy had great sympathy for the common Russian serf soldier. He wanted to write a periodical about the war, to tell the soldiers' stories, to tell things how they really were, but he didn't know how they really were. He hadn't been there yet. What made up Tolstoy's mind was the Battle of Inkerman, a shocking defeat, a massive blow to Russia, and a battle in which one of his close friends had died. Tolstoy was shaken by the news and he decided that he needed to go to Sevastopol for his fallen comrade, for his beloved nation, and for himself so he could see what the war was really like. Tolstoy requested and was given permission to transfer to Sevastopol. Ensign Leo Tolstoy arrived in the besieged city of Sevastopol on November 19, 1854, two weeks after the Battle of Inkerman. Remember, Sevastopol was not completely surrounded. It was divided into a north and south side, separated by a broad harbor. The Allied army was not big enough to cut the city off, so not only could supplies be delivered to the north side and road across the harbor to the south, but a road north of the Inkerman Heights was also open for supply and transport. Reinforcements could enter Sevastopol. Tolstoy only spent a few days inside the city in 1854, but what he saw was enough to begin the transformation that would make him the Tolstoy of history. It was this experience that would inspire the first of the Sevastopol sketches, Sevastopol in December, 1854. Sevastopol in December is a short read, 10 minutes, 15 tops, and I highly recommend it. You can easily find it online a bunch of places, different translations. Tolstoy writes it in second person, taking the reader on a boat across the harbor into the city and up to the front lines. He says stuff like, you see, you feel, so the whole story resembles one of those long point-of-view shots from a classic movie, like maybe a Scorsese film. Here is how Tolstoy describes arriving in Sevastopol. Throngs of gray soldiers, black sailors, and women of various colors move noisily along the shore. Here upon the first steps are strewn rusted cannonballs, bombs, grapeshot, and cast-iron cannon of various calibers. A little further on is a large square upon which lie huge beams, gun carriages, sleeping soldiers. There stand horses, wagons, green guns, ammunition chests, and stacks of arms. Soldiers, sailors, officers, women, children, and merchants are moving about. Carts are arriving with hay, bags, and casks. Here and there, Cossacks make their way through, or, or officers on horseback, or a general in Androsky. To the right, the street is hemmed in by a barricade, in whose embrasures stand some small cannon, and beside these sits a sailor smoking his pipe. And of course, there's always the gunfire from the trenches off in the distance. Tolstoy describes the nastiness, the ugliness, the broken buildings and ruined lives of Sevastopol, but he also describes the calm courage, the almost innocent resilience of the soldiers, sailors, and civilians defending the city. It's not romantic heroism, the heroism of the stories or the songs or the movies. This is everyday heroism, the simple work and simple life of people under fire, under the shadow of death. It's the kind of heroism you would see in London in 1940, or New York in 2001, or Kiev in 2022. I'm not making that to be comparison to be ghoulish. A lot of these people are the ancestors of the Ukrainians today. The heroism of the ordinary man or woman. Tolstoy takes you into Sevastopol's main hospital, once the noble assembly telling you not to be ashamed of looking at the sufferers, the wounded, because they want to speak to you, want to tell you their stories. When talking to a wounded sergeant, you feel embarrassed because you have not been through what he's been through. You begin to understand the defenders of Sevastopol. For some reason, you feel ashamed of yourself in the presence of this man. You would like to say a very great deal to him in order to express to him your sympathy and admiration. But you find no words, or you, you are dissatisfied with those which come into your head. And you do reverence and silence before this taciturn, unconscious grandeur and firmness of soul. This modesty in the face of his own merits. Then you see something unusual. On the other side, you behold in a cot, the pale, suffering and delicate face of a woman, upon whose cheek plays a feverish flush. That's our little sailor lass who was struck in the leg by a bomb on the 5th, your guide tells you. She was carrying her husband's dinner to him in the bastion. The sailor's wife had had her leg amputated above the knee. These were the women of Sevastopol. Tolstoy takes you into the surgical chamber where Dr. Pirogov and his surgeons are hard at work on amputations. You see the sharp, curved knife enter the healthy, white body. You see the wounded man suddenly regain consciousness with a piercing cry and curses. You see the army surgeon fling the amputated arm into a corner. You see another wounded man lying in a litter in the same apartment, shrink convulsively and groan as he gazes at the operation upon his comrade. Not so much from physical pain as from the moral torture of anticipation. You behold war, not from its conventional, beautiful, and brilliant side, with music and drumbeat, with fluttering flags and galloping generals, but you behold war in its real phase, in blood, in suffering, in death. What we're seeing here is Tolstoy changing, evolving, the romantic notions of war that literature and poetry and patriotism had drilled into him dissolving, the carelessness and recklessness of his youth colliding with reality, the cold ugliness of human conflict. Tolstoy, a 26-year-old noble who had spent his days gambling and drinking and eating ice cream, was confronted with the suffering of everyday people, and it was changing him. Tolstoy takes us through the town, through the lively market, to local inns where officers and sailors and ladies are congregating, bragging of their deeds and heroism, ignoring the rumble and crash of artillery and musket fire from the defenses. They talk of the fourth bastion, the hardest place, the worst place, a place across from the French lines, a constant point of attack. One thing I really want to get across here is that the siege of Sevastopol was not quiet when the battles weren't going on throughout November and December and January, all the way to the end. There was always fighting, day after day after day, of trench raids and bombardments and small assaults to capture this rifle pit or that redoubt or that objective. It was a horrible, grinding siege where men were constantly fighting, very similar to World War I. The siege of Sevastopol was the centerpiece, the decisive action of the Crimean War. One of the things that I think does make it the first modern war but we'll talk all about that next week in part five. For now, just know, the battles of Balaclava and Inkerman were not the only fighting going on in this period. There was always a constant war in the trenches outside Sevastopol. Some days were so bad they outdid Balaclava or even the Alma in sheer casualties. But never Inkerman. Inkerman stood alone. Tolstoy takes us to the fourth bastion and shows us the everyday heroism of the ordinary soldier and sailor, working their guns against the foe. He ends Sevastopol in December by telling us that what we have witnessed reveals the true courage and character of the Russian peasant, the Russian people. It's just like a revelation that these common folk the nobility despise are showing that they are worthy of much more than their lot. Proves that they're not just serfs, they are people that deserve recognition. So now you have seen the defenders of Sevastopol on the lines of defense themselves, and you retrace your steps, for some reason paying no attention now to the cannonballs and bullets which whistle across your route, and you walk in a state of calm exultation. The one central reassuring conviction you have come away with is that it is quite impossible for Sevastopol to ever be taken by the enemy. This impossibility you have observed in the eyes, the words, the behavior, that which is called the spirit of the defenders of Sevastopol. Men will not put up with terrible conditions like these for the sake of a cross or an honor, or because they have been threatened. There must be another higher motivation, a love for his native land. Long will Russia bear the imposing traces of this epic of Sevastopol, the hero of which was the Russian people. Hear that? Not the czar, not the church, not the generals, not the nobles, but the people. This was a fairly radical notion for Russia at the time, that the people were the nation and not the ideals or the nobility or the aristocracy being the nation. That the common folks, the serfs, they were what Russia was not the people on top. Tolstoy would serve throughout the siege of Sevastopol in the Russian army throughout the rest of the siege. He did duty for a few months just outside the city, but then he was in the trenches, in the bastions and redoubts during the height of the siege from April to September 1855. And Tolstoy did not come out of this conflict unchanged. Sevastopol in December is somewhat realistic, but still very romantic, with a rose-colored sheen of patriotism and nationalism. But Tolstoy's views would change as the siege went on, as he witnessed the incompetence and cruelty of Russian officers, as he came to sympathize more and more with the soldiers, as he was traumatized and shocked by the horrors of war and conflict. The other two Sevastopol sketches are much different in tone from Sevastopol in December. Sevastopol in May 1855 depicts a group of cocky, vain young staff officers fighting on the lines against a French attack. Tolstoy here is cynical, more brooding. You get the feeling that some of these staff officers are his own past self, that he's looking back at them like, ugh, I was like that? With, with like contempt, you know? He also shows the impact of war on civilians, especially the helpless, the children. One, one of his characters is a little girl who can't tell the stars above her head from the mortar bombs falling on her city. How can she look at the night sky with a child's eyes ever again? The city of Sevastopol and its civilians suffered horribly. The longer the siege went on, and it was a long siege, the harder it became to supply the city and the more artillery the allies assembled on the heights. Heavy bombardments became more and more common as the siege became, came closer to its end. Soon, much of the city was ruined and most of the civilians were long gone or killed in the crossfire. Sevastopol in August 1855 is even more cynical. This one talks about two brothers who die in their last ditch defense of Sevastopol, a doomed battle they cannot win. This is Sevastopol at the end of the siege. In Tolstoy's work, one soldier outside Sevastopol asks another, Hey, Is my old barracks room still there? Who's in that room these days? His friend says, My dear fellow, the building was shelled to kingdom come ages ago. You won't recognize Sevastopol now. There's not a single woman left in the place. No taverns, no brass bands. The last pub closed down yesterday. It's about as cheerful as a morgue. Tolstoy's Sevastopol sketches were one of the kickstarters to his writing career, stories that brought the war home to the Russian reading public, showing the courage of the serf soldiers and the resilience of these people the nobility had failed and mistreated. Tolstoy's writings on Sevastopol also helped turn the siege into a key component of Russian patriotism and pride, a heroic epic of Russian history, equaled only by 1812 and the war against Napoleon. It was framed as a battled that the Russian people, not any one Russian leader excepting maybe Kornilov and Nakimov, who Tolstoy greatly admired. But Tolstoy came out of the Crimean War severely disillusioned with Russian politics, society, and the army. He had seen the failures of the Russian nobility, the courage of the Russian peasant soldiers and civilians, and what he saw as the collapse of the Russian class system, the idea of it in general. Russia's ultimate defeat in the war was traumatizing, but Tolstoy believed he saw something new emerging. A new Russian patriotism, not based on the Tsar or the Church or the aristocracy, but on the people, on the working man or woman who did whatever they could under the shadow of war. Tolstoy saw the horrors of war, the inhumanity of the Russian system, and the courage and dedication of the Russian people as a transforming experience. The Crimean War changed his life. It was a turning point, a great swerve that helped create the Tolstoy that the world remembers today. Tolstoy left the army and traveled Europe after the Crimean War, determined to find the truth in what he had witnessed under the guns of Sevastopol. He he met many of the famous radicals and revolutionaries of the day, including Victor Hugo in London, and even got to read one of the early drafts of Les Miserables. These travels not only enlightened him, but radicalized him, showed him that there was a different way than the old Russia he had known, a different path for his homeland than the tyranny of the Tsars. Leo Tolstoy would come to reject the established Russian order, reject government, reject organized religion, reject war and militarism. He embraced a strange philosophy that still survives to this day, a pacifist Christian anarchism based on what he saw and believed as the good nature of the simple Russian peasant. As he grew older, this impulse, this ideology informed his thinking more and more. Tolstoy is often regarded as one of the great anarchist thinkers in addition to a famous author. As he grew more famous and more radical at the same time, these ideas would get him into trouble and eventually excommunicated by the Russian Orthodox Church. Tolstoy was too famous to ever send to Siberia or throw in the gulag, but he was always kept under surveillance as a potential dissident, and he was a dissident. But Tolstoy only was untouchable because he became the greatest author Russia had ever known. Most people will have heard of the great novel War and Peace, mainly for its length. Don't get me wrong, War and Peace, published in 1869, is a freaking doorstopper. I have only read parts of it myself. But Tolstoy channeled his experience at Sevastopol and his outline of the Sevastopol sketches into his great Russian saga of family love, military heroism, and sacrifice, and the nature of the Russian soul. Tolstoy saw the defeat of Napoleon depicted in the novel as the triumph of the peasant serf soldiers, the basis of a future Russian democratic spirit if they were ever given the chance. He followed this novel with Anna Karenina, a novel of adultery and heartbreak published in 1878, but again, there was a very important side plot in this novel about a noble who decides to work the land alongside the peasants and develops a special bond with them. Once again, Tolstoy was demonstrating that he had learned what so few other Russians had, that the lower classes were people, people of worth and importance and value, and these were the future bedrock of Russian society. He even opened and ran schools for the former serfs on his estates, though these got him into trouble with the Tsarist authorities. Tolstoy's commitment to the common man, his down-to-earth attitude, his unromantic outlook on war and peace, love and misery, made him one of the premier authors in a new literary style. If Enlightenment looked to the future and Romanticism looked to the past, Realism looked to the here and now. It focused less on the dramatic hero or the dark mysteries of the Romantic movement, and more on the simple, the everyday, the human. Tolstoy has been described as banal, almost common in his work. It was just a new way of thinking about the world, that everyday life, that the common people could be as important as the intellectual heights of the Enlightenment or the passionate dreams of the Romantics. It was a realism that Tolstoy had come to embrace in the Crimean War. As Tolstoy became one of the most beloved authors in the world, as War and Peace and Anna Karenina became bestsellers and dominated the landscape of Russian literature, he became more convinced that the aristocracy, the autocracy, the repressiveness of Russian society was holding his country back. This came hand in hand with some odder beliefs, including the belief in chastity and a rejection of marriage, which, you know, made him super popular with his wife, who had recopied every individual draft of War and Peace by hand and borne him 13 children. Tolstoy and his wife had a famously contentious marriage, mostly Tolstoy's fault, especially as they grew older. But overall, Tolstoy just saw a different Russia than the one he had been brought up and raised in, a better future. By the 1890s, he even had his own cult followers, the Tolstoyans, who believed in his pacifist anarchist Christian principles. We can say that Tolstoy was naive, and maybe he was. Lots of radicals are. But he inspired lots of people, and not just in Russia. His later works reached and touched people all over the world, including a young middle-aged lawyer from India. Just before his death, Tolstoy opened a correspondence with Mahatma Gandhi, who took much of the inspiration for his nonviolent and pacifist resistance to British imperialism from Tolstoy's works. Gandhi called Tolstoy the greatest modern philosopher of nonviolence. Leo Tolstoy's disgust for violence, his rejection of the Russian system, the value he placed on the individual spirit and on the peasant and downtrodden, had all begun under the guns of Sevastopol. When Tolstoy died on November 20, 1910, at the age of 82, he had changed the world through his pen and his words. His ideas of nonviolence would go on to influence Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and his belief in a decentralized, simple Christian anarchism kick-started the movement that still lives today. Tolstoy wasn't just Russia's great novelist, he was a man who saw something important in the human spirit, even the Russian spirit, saw a different way, a different version of Russia that wasn't autocratic, militaristic, and repressive like Nicholas I's empire. I think it's fair to say that if Russia had taken Tolstoy's path and not the path of Nicholas I, of Stalin, of Putin, well, it might be peaceful in the Donbass today. And the roots of this transformation go back to that moment that a foolish young officer first set foot on the docks of Sevastopol in December 1854. So I'm going to finish this short round with the end of that first short story as our guide, Ensign Tolstoy, concludes his tour. Night is already falling. The sun has emerged from the gray clouds, which cover the sky just before its setting, and has suddenly illuminated with a crimson glow the purple vapors, the greenish sea covered with ships and boats rocking on the regular swell, and the white buildings of the city, and the people who are moving through its streets. Sounds of some old waltz played by the regimental band on the boulevard, and the sounds of firing from the bastions, which echo them strangely, are Across the water. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. But whatever you do, don't tell your spouse you don't believe in marriage anymore unless you're prepared for a serious conversation. Again, Sevastopol in December is a quick read, easy to find online. I highly recommend it. While you're online, go ahead and check my website at UnknownSoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources. I'm always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or email me at Unknown at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary. Just give it to me. Tell me what you want. Tell me what you want to hear about next. Tell me what I need to talk more about. You want me to stop talking about random Russian authors? Let me know that too. You got advice? I want to hear it. Thanks again for listening today. Tune in to the other short round for this week. We've met our boy, Leo. Let's meet our girl, Mary Seacole. And next week on Monday, we're going to conclude the series with part five, here on Unknown Soldiers.